Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Um, all right, great to be able to catch up with you and, and you know, really have a, a longer formatted discussion, which I think is helpful really for viewers to kind of understand what's going on in the market. So, so thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Catherine. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Um, you know, when I look at the markets right now, I feel like, you know, we were hitting new highs, we're grinding higher, but there's a nervousness about valuations. Um, everything's priced to perfection, if not higher than that. Maybe slower, lower growth, maybe inflation fears, maybe a Fed tapering that can jitter the markets. Um, and then, of course, the COVID variant, which is perhaps slowing down the economic recovery, but at the same time, it almost lends itself to a longer economic cycle. That's kind of how I'm viewing the world, um, you know, and therefore, you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what do I want to do here? But what, well, let's start with, with your uh, with your macro view. What are you thinking these days? Yeah, I think you, you highlighted definitely a lot of the, I think, important topics that are on people's mind. I think what's interesting is, um, you know, all of those things are occurring. So yes, we're at all-time highs, Growth is slowing. There is uncertainty um, about what the economic backdrop is. I mean, we have an election in Canada. You have the central bank potentially tapering in the U.S. Um, you know, in an imminent way potentially. And so there's kind of a variant of risks that are out there. And markets are at all-time highs. And you're entering you know a seasonally weaker time of year. So for all of that, those reasons, we've looked at the market. You know, and, and before, where we've now raised a bit of cash in the last month because you know we can check all of, all of our risk boxes off and say it doesn't look like much of this is being priced in um, to where you know markets are at all-time highs. And so it's not to say that the market uh, you know should go down imminently or we expect it to, but I think we you know we're uh, just viewing the fact that we're entering a weak time of year. It's probably healthy to take some money off the table here. We've definitely recycled a lot of our positions under the hood. So, um, you know, a lot of our more cyclically exposed names that have really run in the first half of the year, our view come the end of summer was that the growth rate of the economy was about to start slowing. And so we wanted to start taking some of that stuff off. So we've recycled some of that into more defensive parts of the portfolio. So, you know, the overall cash levels are a little bit higher than they were um, you know, a few months ago. But I would say what we own in the portfolio has changed pretty significantly in the last couple of months. Huh. And that is with the, the view of saying, we're probably going to slow down here into the fall and let's be a little bit more defensive given how much the market has run so far uh, from the beginning of the year. So um, question then, in terms of um, taking some profits, I mean, maybe you've kind of answered it in terms of recycling that money. But I, I think, you know, one of the struggles that investors have is you might own a great name like an Apple <clears throat> or a Google and, you know, you're well off your average cost base. The, the question is, you know, how much of that do you sell? I mean, do you sell the whole position? Do you sell half of it? How, 
How do you go about thinking? Yeah, I, I think that's a question that a lot of investors do struggle with. And I, I think the way that if I could simplify it down is it comes down to firstly, what is your position size as your overall portfolio? And, uh, you know, a, and then the second thing would be, you know, is there a taxability or a tax event if you're going to, if you're going to sell? And then, you know, how much confidence or conviction do you have that that stock is imminently going to go down? So, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, on the retail side, my, my bet from some of the portfolios that I've seen when, when people come into Avenue is that people have, um, you know, significant position sizes in certain stocks that they've owned for a very long time and they haven't sold them and you know stocks have done well like named apple and, and amazon or google and amazon even for that matter and so the question is just what is a appropriate size of someone's portfolio should any one individual stock be um and that's you know up to individual investors to kind of decide what they think is best um you know we certainly uh care about valuation and you know things that um you know, get to be a little bit too rich for us. We have no problem selling, um, you know, but taking like, let's just say you have Apple in a portfolio and it's a 3% weight and, you know, to sell some down to a 2% weight, is that really going to impact the overall portfolio? Probably not. And so we would rather wait for that company to start um, either being far too expensive or doing something that we don't like and we would rather make the decision, let's just sell the whole position outright and use that money for something else. You know, that's not to say if you have a position that becomes five or six or 10% of your portfolio because it goes up a lot, you know, of course, at some point you should harvest some of that. But I think where we're trying to not be too cute is taking things from 3% to 2% because in the overall portfolio, that's not really gonna have a huge impact. We would rather own full positions in things that we really like than kind of tinker around because it just adds to the turnover of the portfolio, if that makes Got sense. It. Yeah. So from a short-term then aspect, you do think that there could be some seasonal headwinds, um, but where do you think we are in the longer term cycle? Yeah, Whatever so, that means. Yeah. I think what's, what's so fascinating about the last year, year and a half now, going back to you know last February, March, is that the way I would characterize this is that we've been in a, uh, global economy as a whole but you know for this conversation we can sort of key on canada and the us we've been in a debt trap since 2008 2009 and where policymakers have taken us is to even more fiscal stimulus and even more central bank asset purchases and intervention so and you know the question this time around was was it going to work and i think what's clear is that with current debt levels doing even more fiscal stimulus based on government debt is really not helping the economy in any kind of a sustainable way anymore. And so we can go out and borrow a lot of money. So, you know, the US has borrowed $5 trillion in the last year and a half. Canada is over 400 billion. So both are 25% of GDP that we've borrowed. And so, you know, as, as citizens or, you know, market investors, what have we got from that? We've got two quarters of pretty good growth, but what's clear is the economy is already stalling out. So the question is, you know, what should we do versus what is going, what, what will policymakers do and what, you know, how do you invest around that? So, I mean, I think the first thing we should, we should do is we should stop really, um, it's going to be, you know, come from a different angle, but I think continuing to do fiscal stimulus based on debt 
at this level of debt in the economy is making the economy worse off. So when you're in a hole, the first thing you should stop do is stop digging. But do I think that they're going to do that? No, I think we're going to continue with more stimulus. You're already seeing that, you know, in the U.S. Um, it looks like they'll likely pass a bill through reconciliation by the end of the year. So we'll be seeing more fiscal stimulus in the U.S. potentially. And then in Canada, you know, we're running an election where pretty much every party is part of, is you know saying they're going to borrow more money to do more things. So the stimulus will continue. And so I think as investors, what's important is to not think about what should happen, but think about what is most likely to happen, what is happening, and how should you invest around that? And that's kind of you know core to how we're viewing the world right now. Um, but at the end of the day, um, even regardless if we're going to do more stimulus and governments are going to borrow more money, our expectation is not is that the economy won't be better off, and that in you know six months' time or a year's time, we'll be facing the same dilemma where the question is going to be what's next. And so this game can keep going and at some point it will stop. Um, and you know, I think the other, the other side of the coin is really central banks uh, keeping interest rates low to allow governments to be able to afford all this debt. You've now created all kinds of different asset bubbles. And so you know, stocks are up, housing's up, which is making everyone feel wealthy and people are going out and spending money. But um, at some point, this kind of bizarre, almost Alice in Wonderland world that we're in is going to stop. And the question is, A, when will it stop? And I don't think anyone will know. And I think, two, the question is, how do you invest in this world? Um, but most importantly, like, how do you protect against this on the other side? And that's kind of how we're thinking of it, um, if I were to frame sort of the overall picture of, of where we are. Right. And, um, you know, what do you think, what have been some of the solutions to that dilemma, really? Right. I mean, it is a bit of a Goldilocks uh, world rates lower for longer. It's been the case. It's been supportive of asset prices, i.e. continue to own your equity markets. But, you know, there's asset bubbles likely in many, many areas. Um, and everybody always thinks that they're diversified and that aspects of their portfolio are uncorrelated. And that's just never true when when something happens and and that's the question when when does something happen that readjusts the prices of all these various asset classes and we don't know when you you yeah. said that and i totally agree um we're always trying to figure out what we need to be looking at and watching for to, to figure that out but um in the absence of that how do you protect clients money yeah so that's a great uh, it's a great question i think and the way i would also frame this um, and this is sort of the way I think about it is that it's almost like investors, uh, you're, we're playing like three games of chess all at the same time. So I think of this as sort of three dimensional chess. So there's game one is you're playing the game of chess with your portfolio and what you own. So do you own good companies? Do you own bad companies? Do you take profits? Do you raise cash? You know, what are you doing on, a, on an individual company basis? If you move over to the second chessboard, that's the macroeconomic backdrop. And so, you know, what are interest rates doing? What are debt levels doing? Um, you know, are there any bubbles that are uh, clearly evident and what do I do to protect it? And then I would say, um, you know, increasingly what we're moving into is a world where there's a third chessboard and that is what is the government and sort of social response of, of people in a country. So it's kind of like there's three boards and on each board, there's different opportunities and then there's different risks. And so I think 
you know, most investors spend a lot of their time on the first board, focusing on the companies and what they own. I think more and more of my, my time I'm spending on the second board, which is sort of the macro backdrop and really assessing the risks that are out there because in this world where everything has been pushed up because interest rates have been so low, what that means is when things reverse, correlations everywhere go to one. So everyone, you can think you're diversified being in a long equity portfolio or being long real estate or long you know, credit. It's all the same at the end of the day and correlations will go to one if you have some kind of a macro event or a shock to the system. And so one of the things that we've done in the last year and a half is we've implemented uh, a sliver of our portfolio that we, we have in what we call the Avenue Tail Protection Portfolio. And so our equity portfolio is you know, 98% invested in stocks and 2% of our sliver of the Avenue Tail Protection Portfolio. And what that allows us to do is in that sliver of a portfolio, we're able to protect against significant declines in the equity market. Well, in the, at the same time, the rest of the portfolio is fully invested in you know, companies that we know and like. And so for our, our um, you know, from our perspective, I think traditional diversification you know, has been sold as you have to be 60-40 or 70-30 you know, stocks to bonds. And I would say that, you know, that traditional diversification effect uh, is not what it used to be. Um, if, if there were to be you know, a, a significant decline in markets, I mean, I'm sure long-term bonds and gold probably do well relatively, but it's not about doing relatively well if everything's going down. And so you need something in your portfolio that can actually go up to, to protect against the rest of the portfolio. Um, and so that's what we've done in the last year. And we think that we're um, you know, doing everything we can to sort of be able to play both chessboards at the same time. So we're focusing on the companies we own, but we know we have our, you know, our, our tail risk protection to protect against the second and third boards, which you know, are gonna be increasingly, um, you know, I think a, a part of, um, you know, where markets mm -hmm. are going and the economies are going heading forward. And so, sorry, how, how, what, what, what do you use to protect then? Are you doing put strategies or what? Yeah, so there's, there's certain things that we, we, we buy, we go into the derivative space um, with that small, very, very small sliver of the portfolio. And what that allows us to do is to own a derivative instruments that provide convex asymmetric payoffs if the market were to crash. We do this over very, you know, very short-term periods, and so um, what it allows us to do is get the most bang for the buck of protection. Where, you know, if we were to say, you know, we thought the market was going to come off, and we wanted to move half the portfolio into bonds. Firstly, you have to be perfectly right on timing, and then at the same time, the bonds don't provide enough of a payoff to protect against the rest of the portfolio. So there's certain segments of the derivatives market where you can get that protection, and the cost to the overall portfolio is very low. Um, Let, so, yeah, like give us an example as to what that would be. Yeah, so a simple way to think of it would be would be thinking of it like buying out of the money puts on on a stock index is is a way yeah. to think about it, and then laddering yeah. them out in you know, in an appropriate way, um, and and then having the rest of the portfolio invested you know in, in diversified companies. That would be okay. the sim simplest way to think about it. Okay, and and just so our viewers really understand what a put strategy means buying out of the money puts. Um, basically, if the market goes down, you you make money on that directional trade. You believe if you're buying puts, you're buying protection to the downside. 
and that should compensate for the loss that you're actually getting on your equity portfolio. Yeah, exactly right. And I think the, the important thing to highlight is, is the, way, uh, the way options work are, um, you know, it's, for example, if you were to buy a two month put on the S&P right now, um, you know, 30% out of the money. So you take the S&P's at 4,500 and you were to buy, you know, let's say a 3,000 strike, um, the options market is pricing in that that, that option has a 0% probability of being in the money. So, and what's the probability of the market going down that much, next, that much in the next month? I'd say it's very low, but it's not zero. And so the difference between zero and what the option market gives you and where these op where options go, if the market does reset, um, that's what gives you that asymmetric payoff. So that, and the, the most important thing is you don't need a large part of your portfolio to use to protect it. The problem is if you're using five or 10% of your portfolio to protect, then the rest of your portfolio in good times is, is suffering that you know, underinvestment. And so because out of the money puts give you such an asymmetric payoff you know, short-term puts, you can do that with a very small part of the portfolio and then the rest of the portfolio can continue to grow in good times. And so given the fact that the options market as you just described is assigning a 0% probability to the market going down 30%, and I agree, it's probably not zero, maybe it's 1%, um, but I'm wondering the pricing of those options, are they, you know, somewhat affordable? And the reason why I'm asking this, not affordable, but like low cost, because, you know, most options do expire worthless. You're, you're doing this for protection. You're not doing necessarily to make money, um, but there is always a cost of the portfolio. So what, so you have to be very mindful of the price. Um, yeah. And even if they were priced high, but there was increased risk, you probably still buy them. So but, but give us a sense in terms of the cost of the portfolio. Yeah, so I think the, the easiest way to think of this as, as you wanna have a defined budget at the beginning of the year for how much of the, what percentage of the portfolio you're gonna to use to buy protection on the index. And so I, I guess I would also say, you know, for anyone who thinks that the world is great and markets are gonna to continue to go up and everything's perfect in the economy, then you know, protecting the downside is not for you. That's not, you know, that's not, but those aren't certainly aren't, you know, what our clients are feeling right now. And I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, the reason why we do this is because, you know, you know, we're aware and we can understand what risks are out there. And so it's about knowing your own tolerance for risk and then, you know, having a strategy to protect against it. Um, but sort of exactly to your point, what you're, what you're touching on, this is why, um, you know, out of the money option strategy work is because when you have tail events, there's always mispricing in the tails. And so, you know, even if let's just say, um, you know, you're pricing something as there's a, you know, one basis point chance that the market goes down 20 or 30%. And even if, if it, if it actually does go down, then that one, one basis point cost uh, of probability is so low relative to the rest of the portfolio. If you're using, you know, 10 basis points or 20 basis points of your portfolio. And so the payoff that you get from that small sliver more than compensates for the fact that most of the time you're not gonna be right, the market's not gonna go down, but the whole idea is and the rest of the portfolio continues to benefit and go up. So it's really the two of them together. Um, it's not, you know, the, the tail protection is a standalone strategy. What matters is, you know, if you're if you're wanting to own tail protection, it's what are you protecting against? Are you protecting against 
the rest of your portfolio that's fully invested, or are you just betting on the market going down? Because we're, you know, we're certainly not betting on the market going down, but we want to protect against that. And at the same time, the rest of the portfolio then can be invested and you know, we can be comfortable with what we own. But it's really going back to the chessboard analogy, it's, it's protecting against the systemic risks that are now on that second you know, macroeconomic chessboard. And the only way to really do that um, is to do, um, you know, do things through the derivatives market. Yeah, well, and I'm glad we talked about it because I think a lot of the time, you know, people talk about protecting their portfolio, but nobody really knows what that means. So. I totally agree. It's such a jargony. Yeah, it's such a jargony term. So no, I'm it, it it is. It, over the, under the head. Yeah, so. no, it's important. And I think that, you know, for our viewers, when we, you know, put this out online, we'll highlight the fact that we're talking about portfolio protection, because I think it is so key and critical. And the thing is, you only really hear about uh, portfolio protection and somebody making, you know, $2 billion off of yeah, it yeah. after the fact. Yeah. Right. No, so I think the other you thing make too money is doing this too. The other thing too is that what well, you know when this wins a strategy like this will grab the headlines will be yes in that crash event when everybody wants it but the problem is most investors actually aren't disciplined enough to say no if you if you understand how this works you actually want to have this all the time because of what it's protecting against but it, it does take you know the 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 mental discipline and stamina to say yeah, in, in good times, it's not going to it's not going to provide a benefit, but it's it more than makes up for it when you actually need it. And so, you know, that's why when you see you know, volatility go to eighty, the volatility will come down to live at fifteen because nobody's afraid anymore. But it's always, you know, when vol is cheap, that's when strategies like this are able to provide the most bang for the buck in protecting your overall portfolio. But it's it's something that you'll see a headline, and then three years later you'll see another headline, but it's the discipline of having this through that period that I think most people aren't able to stomach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanna to get to a couple of stocks as well, just in terms of, you know, when we think about quality and names that you're comfort comfortable with right now. And actually, before I get into that, we should, we should talk a little bit about, you know, when you think about government policies and, you know, the risks that you know, really being imposed around the world from central bankers and low, lower for longer interest rates and the debt accumulation. From a geographic perspective, um, what, what's your weighting as it relates to Canada and the United States? Yeah, so we think of this, um, you know, de definitely, um, you know, I, I would say we're, we're North American investors. So we're, you know, in many ways agnostic to where uh, we place our money within North America, but we'll also, you know, we'll be biased based on where we think there's relative opportunity or where there's better value than other places. And so um, we've lived the last couple of years around a quarter of the portfolio, specifically directly in the US. Um, at times it's been higher than that, at times it's been lower than that. Um, and, you know, we, we, at the same time, we own a lot of businesses that are listed in Canada that actually own assets in the US. So. We think of it more in those terms of where where is the ultimate asset owned and operate, um, and from that perspective, you know our portfolio is pretty close to half and half, you know Canada and the U.S. of where is the actual other asset or economic activity going on, um, even though our our U.S. dollar exposure might be closer to a quarter of the portfolio, and I think um, you know the challenging thing I think. You know, for many investors, is they get really focused on what the currency is doing rather than um, 
you know, what, what, what is the relative investment opportunity? And a great example on this would have been, uh, you know, March 2020 or April of 2020, after the U.S. market had really, you know, really crashed lower, but the, the Canadian dollar was really weak. So for a Canadian investor to go in and buy U.S. stocks, um, you know, when the dollar was closer to, you know, below 70 cents, the problem is hey, your stocks have done well, but you've lost about 12% on the currency. So right. you know, we, you know, we think of it in those terms of we don't want to take huge currency bets. That's certainly not what our expertise is, but we just want to not do extreme things when the market is at you know, the opposite extreme level. So, you know, when the Canadian dollar is really strong, we want to be looking outside. We want to be looking at the U.S. If the U.S. dollar is really strong, we actually want to be looking at things in Canada because then we can look at things when they're cheaper. Um, and we just try try not to get too caught up in what the currency is doing you know, on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. Okay. And I, I was thinking a little bit more on the, um, on the election and policy risk front. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, we could probably do a whole show on that. Specifically, yeah. But I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think what's important, uh, and I've had to kind of park, you know, certainly park my partisan hat the last several years, because I realized in investing, it doesn't really help you. And I think investors really have to look through this in a nonpartisan way. And it really is just, what is a policy that is going to help the economy? What is policy that is not going to help the economy? And at the end of the day, is if our objective is to, you know, have a prosperous economy where you know we can all benefit, then I think it's important for people to think about that. And to be honest, at this point, I mean, I'm really seeing every party just promise more things with borrowed money, and so the minutia of the policy, you know, people can spend time, you know, arguing about the difference. Um, and, you know, it's certainly not, uh, you know, something I would do. And, but at the end of the day, I look at it across the board is that the government is going to borrow more money, spend more money into the economy. At the end of the day, I think governments continuing to borrow money is a huge part of the problem. So I'm not seeing, a, you know, a significant amount of solutions really from any party. And that might be, you know, my own, my own view of it, but that's just kind of what I see. And that's, I think it's clear that the economy is not responding well to more you know, government debt. Yeah. But at the same time, going back to what we said at the beginning, I don't expect them to stop. So it's, you have to kind of play the game within front of you. You can't you know, hope yeah. that things get better. Having said that, let's talk about a couple of stocks that you do feel comfortable owning right now. Cargo Jet. What's the valuation though on Cargo Jet these days? Yeah, so it's it, Cargo Jet is the uh, you know, e-commerce um, air cargo delivery company that's done very well. They're based out of you know the Hamilton Airport, uh, flying all throughout Canada. Um, and the, the, the thing with Cargo Jet that's I think you know was very interesting last year is it was in twenty twenty the stock price doubled, but because earnings doubled or you know, cash flow doubled, you know the valuation didn't expand. So you had a stock that went up one hundred percent. But the valuation was still pretty reasonable, and in the last, you know, so far this year since January, the stock has kind of just moved sideways, and it sort of digested uh, an equity issuance that they did earlier in the year. But it trades roughly around 11 times EBITDA, so it's not expensive relative to other parts of the market. I think some people look at the stock and say, "Well, this is really run a lot. I don't want to own it." But when we go under the hood and look through um, the operating performance of the business, we think it's in a great spot. Uh, it's very reasonable valuation, and I think that there is continued room for them to grow, not just in Canada, but also internationally as well. Um, and so we're very comfortable owning it's the largest position in our portfolio. And, you know, we've trimmed it when, it when it ran up. We added back to it when it 
um, sold off earlier this year, but we're still very happy owning that as kind of a long-term um, Canadian business. Okay. And um, within the dental space, you like Dental Corp. Yeah, so Dental Corp is a new one for us. Uh, they, they came public a few months ago uh, on the TSX. And really what they're doing is buying up uh, all the private dental offices throughout Canada. So there's about 15,000 dental practices in Canada. They own about 440 of them or so. Um, so their, their share of the market is sort of low single digits. Um, and they've, you know, dental practices have very stable cash flows. Uh, I think you know, Canadian population is, is the most ins insured from a dental insurance perspective in the world. So, you know, about 80% of Canadians have dental insurance and, you know, almost more than 90% go to the dentist at least once every two years. And so there's a real stable business underlying that. And what they're able to do is go in and acquire uh, and roll up new dental practices and it trades at a you know, very reasonable valuation. Um, and it's a, you know, just over... Two billion market cap, uh, but we huh. think this is something that there's there's a lot of room for them to continue to grow. And the ticker there is DNTL. Do I have the right one? DNTL, yeah, Dental okay. Corp. Dental Corp. Okay. Holdings, I think is the name of it. It's down pretty significantly. Is it? What is it? What's it down today? Well, sorry, just over over the past. Let's see. I don't know. Over the past, well, from the highs. Let's put it that way. Well, I think, I mean, I think it got up somewhere around 17 bucks. It probably went back down to about $15 and then. Oh. Um, okay. You know what? I've got the wrong one. Okay. I'll bring it up. Okay. Yeah, but the, it's, okay. It's, it's trading somewhere around 15 and a half, but I think it got issued at 10, went to 17 and then it's trading down there somewhere around 15 and a half. Okay. Got it. Um, and then uh, lastly, Ann Lauer, what is that company? Yeah, so Ann Lauer Healthcare Group, uh, the ticker for that one is A-N-D, and that trades on the Toronto Exchange as well. Um, and what, what they do is healthcare logistics, um, and really thinking about it as the, you know, the most sensitive sort of temperature controlled part of you know, healthcare logistics and delivery. So for you know, medications or vaccines that need to be stored at very particular um, regulated temperatures, they do um, you know, all the transportation for that throughout Canada. Um, we really like that because we think it's a growing business. Um, we think that they are leaders in the space. We think the, the management team and the CEO, uh, I think is, you know, probably one of the best, you know, business operators in, in Canada. I think he's very underrated. He knows the business very well. Um, they recently did an acquisition in the U.S. Uh, to grow some of their distribution capacity down there. And so, it's a nice business with, you know, with high 20% EBITDA margins. There's not a lot of competition. It's highly regulated. And you know, it's an industry as a whole, you know, healthcare, um, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals growing at high single digits a year. And so for us, this is you know, something that we can own in Canada that we think is a really nice business to have, to have in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's been, it's been a great conversation. Thank, thanks so much for it. I'm glad we've, uh, we're able to catch up on, on the long-term views, portfolio protection, key, <laughs> and, and some stocks. So thank, thanks so much. My pleasure. It's been really nice chatting with you, Catherine.